welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. This is episode 424 of Inside Education. My name is Sean Delaney. I am a primary teacher and teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, published by Routledge, is now available on Kindle or as an audiobook. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. And you can write to me by emailing insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. All previous episodes of Inside Education are available for listening or downloading if you go to my website, seandelaney.com, and click on the Podcasts tab. On this week's podcast, I explore the importance of learning to count for children's early mathematical development with a researcher who has spent his career to date studying this specific and crucial area. Professor Art Baroudi is a Professor of Curriculum and Instruction in Early Childhood and Elementary Mathematics Education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His research focuses on the teaching and learning of basic counting, number and arithmetic concepts and skills by young children, including children with learning difficulties. He is someone I've wanted to interview in the podcast for a long time, and in my classes and presentations on mathematics education, I often quote the title of an early article written by Art Baroudi called Manipulatives Don't Come With Guarantees. You'll really like this podcast if you are the parent, educator or teacher of a young child or children and you enjoy watching them learning to count. It will interest anyone who encounters young children who find learning mathematics difficult. You will hear intricate details about learning to count such as subitizing, the successor principle and the increasing magnitude principle, which reveal the kinds of expertise teachers draw on when teaching children to count. Art Baroudi weaves mathematics education concepts into stories and anecdotes from his life and career. When I spoke to Professor Art Baroudi over Zoom, I noted that when many children enter school, they can recite numbers in order up to 5, 10 or even 100. I then asked Art Baroudi to tell me what he means when he says someone is able to count. Uh, First of all, I avoid the word count. (laughs) The reason is the word count or counting is ambiguous. So... When I talk about counting, I usually label it somehow, such as verbal counting, which refers to saying the standard sequence in order. And I distinguish that from object counting, which entails counting a collection to determine the total. So I think it's just best to avoid the word count or counting because it means several things and we need to be clear about what we're talking about. So verbal counting basically entails reciting a standard number word sequence. And that entails knowing the rote portion in English up to about 12 or so. And then the rule governed portion beyond that. Uh, Because once you get past 12, there are rules that you can detect and use to to generate the count. And and we know this because 
children will, for example, count 18, 19, 10, teen, 11, teen, 12, teen, or 28, 29, 2010, 2011, 2012. So they have seen a pattern and they pick up on it and use that then as a rule to generate the count sequence. Initially, sometimes these, these patterns are overused or misapplied, but verbal counting is often referred to as rote counting. Boy, I hate that term because only the first portion of the count sequence really is learned by rote. After that, it's a matter of what are the, what are the patterns here? and then using those patterns to generate the count sequence. In English, at least, another part of being able to verbally count is knowing what the exceptions to the rules are. So, for example, in the teens, you take the original count number, like six, and just add teen. It used to mean six tens, <laughs> but somehow it's become 16 in English. Who knows? It's a crazy language. So you pick up on that rule, but 13 and 15 are exceptions to that rule. It should be 13 and 15 if we were following a, the pattern, strictly speaking. So Asian children have a tremendous advantage here because when they learn to count, they learn the first 10 count words. And then the teens are 10 and 1, 10 and 2, 10 and 3. And you get up to 20, it's then two tens and one, two tens and two and so forth. So it's very regular. And so Asian children have a tremendous advantage over English speaking uh, children and other uh, some other romance languages because there are no exceptions. I mean, it's just straightforward structure and it underscores the grouping by 10 idea <laughs> very nicely. Where in English, it's all kind of disguised. You've got 20. It's not clear that that's actually two tens. So it's much easier if you're, if you're an Asian child to learn how to, how to count. So that's verbal counting. And then there's the area of object counting. With object counting, you, you're using the counting word sequence to determine the total of a collection by labeling each item in a collection with one and only one number word. So that's a completely different skill and that's a more advanced skill. But even there, uh, children can learn how to to count objects by row. And so, so here we have. So you're, you've raised your hand with five, five fingers. Five fingers, there it is. One, two, three, four, five. How many fingers do I have? Five. Well, many kids learn that they can simply state the last number word and that will satisfy adults. That makes adults happy. They don't know why <laughs> the adults are happy. They don't realize that's the total, but you know, it does seem to please adults. And so it gets them off their back for a minute and the kids goes merrily on his way. So being able to meaningfully count objects 
entails understanding the cardinality principle, which simply is the last number word we use in the counting process, not only marks off the fifth item in this case, but also tells us the total number of fingers that I counted. And that's a really important idea and that's a, and that's a major, major leap. So that's what I mean by uh, verbal counting and object counting. And you've said that the object counting is the more sophisticated. By what age right. should a child be able to object count? Basically about three years of age, they should start they should start being, they should be able to count small collections in a one-to-one -one fashion. They might not completely master the skill and it might not be meaningful to them until maybe three and a half or four. I can, I can look up the team of data and, and give you uh, a more precise uh, answer, but I think that's pretty close. No, no, and, and that's fine. And, and, Okay. And if a teacher is trying to determine if a child can successfully count, how how do they assess that? You mean object counting or? Sorry, yeah, object counting. <laughs> yes. Object yes. counting. What uh, task we use is a how many task. And it's called the, I use a hidden stars game. Basically, I show a child a card with, let's say, four stars on it in a row. And the child counts the stars. I then hide the card. I turn it over and ask the child, how many stars am I hiding? And if the child at least has the last word rule, they'll say four. That, that they realize that the last number word used in the count process is the answer, they'll, they'll respond four. If they don't have at least the last word rule, if not the cardinality principle, which is the last word rule with understanding, <laughs> realizing it's the total. <laughs> if a kid doesn't have that rule or principle, they, uh, they will often try to recount the collection. Even though it's hidden, they'll try to count it again by imagining it or they'll give another number, or they'll say, I don't know. And in that so, instance, is there anything a teacher can do to promote object counting? Any activities they can do with the child? To uh, promote object counting? Yes. And, and meaningful object counting. Yes, exactly. Well, you can use the same task that I just described the uh, Hidden Stars game, for example, basically you can have a child count the collection, hide it, and then have the child try to tell you how many objects you're hiding. And what I would recommend, what I think would really help in this case, is if you use really small collections that the child can subitize. By subitize, I mean immediately recognize without counting. So if a child can, let's say, subitize up to three, they can understand why an adult would model counting three like this. One, two, 
three. Adults will often emphasize that last term for whatever reason. It's it, intuitively, it's a good strategy because that three has special meaning. It's not only the third object, it's the total number of objects. Now, if you can't supertize three, well, then it's it's not obvious why the adult is changing the pitch of their voice or stretching out the word or otherwise emphasizing the last word. Adults will also do this, one, two, three. See, three. Well, if you can't supertize three, if you don't recognize three, you, you really can't see it. But if a child can supertize three, they can tell you, oh, this is three. Okay, when adult goes one, two, three, there's a chance then that the child says, oh, wait, that last word that was emphasized, okay. Now, why did, they, why did mommy do that? Because there's three objects there. Oh, she's emphasizing that last word because there's three objects there. Or one, two, three. See, three. Yes, the child who can supertize three can literally see that there are three. And so it's much more likely that modeling a counting procedure will, will click with that child who can supertize that collection. Uh, and so it's much more likely that... Uh, they're, they're going to learn how to, to count in a meaningful fashion if you model it with, with small numbers. And subitizing is not only a foundation for meaningful counting, it's a foundation for so much else mathematically. For example, if a child can subitize uh, one, two, and three, and the child is counting one, two, three. Oh, wait, the, the numbers are getting bigger. I can see one. I know what one looks like. I know what two looks like. I know what three looks like. And one is bigger than the other. And so they might realize that, oh, saying these number words in a particular order is important. And it's important because the numbers are getting bigger as I count further. So by subitizing small collections and connecting it to their verbal counting knowledge, uh, a child can begin to get insight into the structure of the count sequence and into our number system and begin put the pieces together in a, in a meaningful way. So. Now, a child who can supertize one, two, and three may learn that three is more than two. So they, they now understand ordinal relations among numbers. And the further you go in the count sequence, the bigger the number represented. So this is called the increasing magnitude principle. And it's an important insight. Uh, because now the count sequence represents not just different size collections, they, they represent increasingly large collections. 
Another way supertizing is really, really important for, for young children is if you see two items, if you see two items and you can supertize two, and then you see one more item added to the collection and you now see three there, you can see that adding to a collection makes it larger. Now that's the foundation of addition of an addition concept. If you see a collection of three and you can subitize it and you see one item being removed, well, now you realize that, oh, uh, taking away an item makes the collection smaller. So it can be the basis then of, of understanding fundamental concepts of addition and subtraction. Also, children may learn that one and one is two, two and one more is three, three take away one is two, two take away one is one. And so they may start building up a body of arithmetic facts based on their the subitizing experience. And this can be enhanced, for example, by playing dice games where children see again and again, for example, two and two is four. So playing dice games can be very educational for very young kids. So it sounds like investing time in teaching children to count is essential for their subsequent mathematical development. Learning how to count verbally count is important because that then is the basis for creating this mental number list that, that you have in your head. So for example, now you know that, okay, it goes seven, eight, nine, and so nine is bigger than eight and so forth. And eventually you learn that nine is exactly one more than eight. Eight is exactly one more than seven. And how do you learn that? Probably by subitizing one and one is two. You see two and one more makes three, three and one more makes four. And if you can subitize all those numbers, then you can pick up on this successor principle. The idea that each step in the count sequence means you've added one more. That's a fundamentally important idea. So learning the verbal count is, is in itself just a road exercise, at least for the first part of the count sequence, but it lays the foundation for so much more. It provides then a mental number list that you can operate on, that you can use to add and subtract, for example. So verbal counting is important. Also object counting is, is really crucial because then you can solve, for example, informal problems. How much is three and two? Well, you can put up three fingers on one hand and two fingers on the other hand. So this is three and this is two more. So how much is three and two more? You count all the fingers you put up and that's five. It gives you a vehicle then for solving addition and subtraction problems informally. So Yes, verbal and uh, object counting are really important for creating a foundation for informal number knowledge and arithmetic. 
It's really important. And I would say the foundations of meaningful object counting is supervising. Because uh, that that's really where parents and teachers need to need to start. It's really important, for example, for for two year olds to be able to recognize uh, one and two, and for three year olds to be able to recognize three and four year olds to be able to recognize at least four and maybe even five. Because what we find is that kids who can subitize are much more likely to learn a host of other number counting and arithmetic concepts and skills that their less fortunate peers don't. And if you look at kids coming into kindergarten, the kids who can't supertize one, two, and three, oh my goodness. Kindergarten math is, it might as well be in Greek. Uh, it's, 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 it's going to be largely incomprehensible to kids because they don't have a foundation to, to build on. Whereas a kid who can supertize one, two, three, and four probably has learned a whole host of other things like the informal idea of addition, the idea of the successor principle that each number is exactly one more than its predecessor. And so this kid is really ready to take off and begin to learn formal mathematics. But if a kid doesn't have a solid informal foundation, beginning with subitizing, boy, it's, it's an uphill climb. And what research shows us again and again is that a kid who starts out behind in kindergarten is gonna get further and further behind as school goes on. These early concepts and skills are really, really important. This informal ma mathematical knowledge is really an important basis then for school readiness. And that's why we're seeing so much interest now in preschool mathematics education. Uh, for the first 25 years of my career, no one cared. <laughs> <laughs> what I was doing with young kids. <laughs> it wasn't terribly important. <laughs> and then one day, Time Magazine says, you know, kids, preschool math. <laughs> and, you know, people began to wake up to the fact that, boy, if kids don't get it in the preschool years and don't have a firm foundation, a readiness for, for school uh, math, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be a real struggle. And as a result, there was a growing recognition that informal knowledge was really important, that this knowledge was not e evenly distributed among children, that some children lacked the opportunity to develop informal knowledge, and those kids were at a tremendous disadvantage. So it became really important to um, come up with intervention programs, early intervention programs that would help kids close the gap, catch up to their more fortunate peers so that they were on an equal footing when, when school started. That's only happened in the last 20 years or so. And then 
It's so so gratifying. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah, because you, you put so much time into it. One of the ideas that you write about is that of a hypothetical learning trajectory. What what exactly is a hypothetical learning trajectory? A hypothetical a learning trajectory has three components. Okay, one is a goal. And that's basically a level of knowledge or a level of thinking that we're trying to achieve. The second component is a learning progression, which is a series of levels that lead up to that goal. And then the third component of uh, hypothetical learning trajectories are uh, instructional activities or processes that uh, help a child get from one level to the next. And how is it relevant to a teacher's work? It helps a teacher to value thinking developmentally. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that our, our instruction and our questions to children need to be developmentally appropriate at a level that a child can understand. Let me give you a specific example. When my elder daughter was about um, three or four or so, I asked her, Allison, what number comes after nine? And Allison didn't respond. Her mother, who was listening in and a former primary teacher, said, Allison, what number comes after one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? And Allison immediately said 10. So if you understand how kids counting develops, this all makes sense because children first learn the counting sequence as a sing song. Ginsburg called it a sing song. It's basically just a string of sounds. The, the child doesn't even realize that there are discrete number words in the sound. You know, it's just, it's just sounds that you make that are all strung together and there's no discrete number. But at some point, a child realizes, oh, when mommy's counting, she's saying distinct words. One, two, three four. So they are distinct separate words. But if you ask a child what comes after a number, they have to count from one. They have to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And that's where Allison was. So my question was actually one level higher than, than Allison was operating at, at the time. The next level would be, you can access the count sequence at any point and start counting. You're so familiar with the count sequence, you don't have to start with one anymore. You can just access the count at any point and go. So what comes, what's after nine? Oh, 10. I don't have to start from one anymore. And that allows you then to count on. So at that point, a, a child at this third level then 
if you ask them, start with 10 and count for me, the child could go 10, 11, 12, and so forth. Where the child at Allison's level, if you say, start with 10 and count for me, they, they'd either shake their head and say, no, I can't do that. Or they would go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. <laughs> so uh, that's one one reason I think it's really important for for teachers to be familiar with hypothetical learning trajectories because it it helps underscore this idea that 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 kids' knowledge develops in steps, and it's important to know what step a child is on so that you can communicate <laughs> meaningfully with the child. <laughs> if you target a level that's too low, you're not gonna be teaching the child anything because the child's gonna be bored. The child won't care. If you target a level too high, then the child isn't gonna know what you're talking about, can't make sense of it. and will get will basically get bored too so it's it's important to 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 think developmentally in this, the idea that kids knowledge develops often in steps and we need to know on what step the child is if we want to communicate in a, in a meaningful fashion so this is tied then to formative assessment if you're going to teach a child you need to know where the child is at <laughs> on this on this series of steps because if you target too low which often is the case you just bore the class and you don't help them and 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 math becomes this thing that ugh, just icky it's just not fun okay so if you're going to teach a child what you have to do start out doing is figuring out where the child is at in this developmental progression on what step so that you can then target the next step and help the child make the transition from the step they're on to the, 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 the next step that they need to be at. And in this way, the child can make meaningful progress. Typically what school does is either targets instruction too low for the child, which is just boring, or too high. And that that's just abysmal because the child either tunes out, the child either memorizes the math by rote, which is not very helpful, or they partially memorize it and make systematic errors. So the, the the options here aren't aren't very good. And do the teachers have to come up with the hypothetical learning trajectories themselves, or is there somewhere that they can actually find pre-prepared learning trajectories? Uh, there's there's a lot of literature now on on learning progressions and hypothetical uh, learning trajectories. So. Uh, Cognitive psychologists and educational researchers have been building these progressions for years now. Now, some are better formed than others. Certainly, we know much more about uh, number and arithmetic and counting development 
much less about developing a patterning, for example. And that's one of the things uh, my, my colleagues and I have been researching recently is how does patterning de development unfold? As a basis for algebra, presumably. Well, uh, for, the, for the basis of problem solving, because if, looking for patterns is, is a basic problem solving strategy. Uh, yes, for algebra, for just discovering things <laughs> in general. <laughs> you, what, what, what is concept formation quite often? Well, it's discovering some kind of connection. That's, that's, that's patterning. So, so learning trajectories are, are very, are, are important. Yes. They provide a guideline as, as to how things typically unfold. You've written a book titled Fostering Children's Mathematical Power. What is yeah. a child's mathematical power? Let me draw a distinction between routine expertise and adaptive expertise. Routine expertise is where you learn something uh, by rote. The problem with routine ex expertise is that it's very hard, if you don't understand something, to apply it to solving a new problem, uh, a slight, even a slight variation of, of, of what you've been taught. Uh, there was... Uh, a, a famous researcher in Germany who was watching a geometry class and the teacher was teaching the class how to do, determine the area of a parallelogram. She says, okay, first of all, you measure the base and then you measure the height and you multiply those two and that gives you the area of the parallelogram. So the researcher, I think it was Wertheimer, I'm not sure, I did. many years now. <laughs> but in any case, the researcher said, teacher, could I ask the class a question? So he drew a parallelogram, but turned it up on its side. And he asked the class, how would I figure out the area of this parallelogram? <laughs> and one child timidly raised his hand and said, that's not a fair question. We haven't been taught that. <laughs> and that's the problem with traditional instruction that focuses on memorization by rote. It's not likely to transfer. The other problem with rote memorization, it's just a whole lot easier to forget if you don't understand something. <laughs> and so you end up with a situation where you cover stuff in first grade by rote memorization. You then go to second grade and you spend the first month reviewing what all the kids have forgotten <laughs> in first, over the summer. And then in third grade, you repeat the process, but now it takes two months to review until you get to about sixth or seventh grade in which the whole year is just review of everything they've had. <laughs> I mean, can you, could you possibly invent a crazier, stupider system, a more inefficient system than, 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 than memorizing math by rote? It's crazy. 
So mathematical power then comes from understanding the maths you're working on. Bingo. Adaptive expertise in contrast to routine expertise is, is learning something with understanding. So now if you understand something and you run into a slightly novel situation like the parallelogram <laughs> being put on its side, because you understand the ideas be behind the procedure, you can then adjust the procedure to, to meet the, the new situation, the new problem. So you're much more likely to exhibit transfer. Moreover, if you understand the connection, you're far more likely to remember it <laughs> and not have to go through months and months of review every school year. Uh, so understanding is, is the foundation, I think, of mathematical power. Other aspects of mathematical power are being able to think, to engage in mathematical inquiry, to think mathematically, to be able to solve problems, to, to engage in reasoning, uh, logical and inductive reasoning, which is basically discovering patterns. Also, another aspect of uh, mathematical power is uh, self-confidence uh, or interest in learning mathematics and using it. So it, it has those three components, I would say. Conceptual understanding, mathematical inquiry skills or mathematical thinking skills, and a positive disposition towards mathematics and, and using it. And do all children potentially have mathematical power? Or is it something that's kind of more likely to be in some children than others? Uh, there are kids who are mathematical geniuses. I'll, I'll grant you that. And, and their, their thinking is, is, is special in, in, some, in, in some ways. But if you're talking about elementary level mathematics, I would say any typical developing child has the capacity to learn elementary mathematics if it's taught properly. So anything that's taught in K through six or even K through eight, I would say is, is something that a typical child is capable of understanding and could learn if taught properly. The shame is so many kids aren't taught properly. So what happens is that we basically, we basically preclude kids from developing mathematical power, which is a real shame. Now, my work with kids who are learning disabled even uh, mentally handicapped, those children do have a capacity to develop a certain amount of mathematical power if they're taught properly. But what I found was that, that these kids were basically thought, well, they're not capable of learning mathematics, so we'll just teach them the mathematics by rote. Well, you're cheating kids. You're really cheating them by, by, by taking that approach. I found that, that uh, kids with severe learning difficulties can learn things like 
the additive commutivity principle, that order doesn't matter, that five plus three and three plus five make the same thing. They were capable of making these fundamental discoveries if taught properly. So, yeah, I, I'm a believer that, yeah, kids, kids are really capable of much more than we give them credit for. I mean, for years, we listened to people like Piaget who told us that kids can't think logically and they they're you know they're they're not they're, they're not very knowledgeable about numbers they really don't understand numbers well we eventually learned that you know we've been underestimating kids an awful lot and there's an awful lot that even preschoolers can do uh, kids in elementary school can do even more <laughs> we often just don't give them the opportunities to do so. Given what you've said about learning by rote, I, I'm interested yeah. to know how you'll respond to this question, but what is your view on teaching children tables, number facts, you know, about addition, subtraction, like the one plus nothing is one, one and one is two and so on? Uh, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you're really cheating kids if that's the approach you're taking. Now, you take that same table and you say, all right, kids, here's a multiplication table. See how this works? If you go, if you go down here to five here and you go over to six here, you see the answer is 30, okay? Now, what I want you to do is to find as many patterns and relations in this table as you can. When my kids were in second, third, and fourth grade, I would go into their class once a week and teach a math lesson. And one of the things I did when my twins were in third grade was I gave them a multiplication table. And I said, I want you to find as many patterns as you can in this table. Those third graders found 52 different patterns in that table, many of which would be very useful in memorizing the multiplication facts by, by meaningful memorization, by seeing, by seeing relationships, by seeing patterns that they can then, then build on. So that's, that's the way to teach number facts is relations and patterns. I would say so, yes. Why not make it a thinking exercise, an inquiry exercise, where you, you've got them looking for patterns and then using those patterns to invent, deduce reasoning strategies. You're killing two birds at one stone. With, with one stone here, you, you're, you're basically helping kids develop un multiplication fact knowledge with understanding. You're involving them in mathematical inquiry. And you're building a positive disposition towards Mark. Because, you know, trying to find patterns is exciting. It's fun. That's what math instruction should be. I mean, it should be exciting. It should be interesting. And discovery. Uh, yes. I, first, I first came across your work to an article you wrote back in 1989 or an opinion piece 
And the title was Manipulatives Don't Come With Guarantees. <laughs> and uh, I, I always thought it was wow. a sh- very short piece. But um, why did you write that that piece? Why, why did I write that? Well, when I was a graduate student, my mentor, Herb Ginsberg, told us that he felt that Piaget's stage of concrete operational thinking was being misinterpreted by American educators, that that kids had to work with real objects in order to to, uh, understand mathematics at that stage. And he said, this may be a misinterpretation. Piaget might mean what you're trying to do is when kids are operating on familiar things, familiar problems or familiar situations, they're much more likely to understand it and and be able to to, uh, come up with an answer. So that was my first inkling. Uh, As a graduate student, I I was lucky enough to go to the Wingspread Conference on Mathematics Learning in the, um, the late 1970s. And the top researchers in the field uh, met and presented papers uh, at, at this conference. And uh, Lauren Resnick, who was at the University of Pittsburgh at the time, uh, presented her research on trying to teach multi-digit addition and subtraction algorithms using manipulatives, base 10 blocks. And she said that some kids could learn the procedure but there, there was no carryover to the, to the written procedure. They, they didn't understand it any better. And other kids were just confused. Or <laughs> it didn't seem to help at all. So manipulatives in themselves are neither good nor bad. It's how they're used. So they can be misused. Quite often, when I started teaching, what I would do was I would show students a manipulative-based procedure for doing an algorithm. For example, multiplying fractions. How can you use Cousinier rods, these colored rods of different lengths to figure out the answer? So I would show them the procedure. I would even explain what I was doing so that they wouldn't understand it, right? And inevitably some student would raise their hand, I don't get it, I don't understand. Ah. (laughs) Every teacher has been there. Whereas the teacher does not want to hear. (laughs) So my thinking began to to evolve. Uh, And I realized that the students needed to invent the procedure themselves. And that way they could own it. It it would make sense to them because they created it. And, and, And then they would they would they would be able to remember it and, and use it and maybe even relate it to the written algorithm. But in order to do that, I realized students needed a little help. 
And that little help can be in the form of an analogy. So for example, in order to understand fraction multiplication, it's not enough to realize that multiplication is repeated addition because that's not gonna help you when you get to fraction multiplication. <laughs> it's not gonna make any sense whatsoever. You need another more powerful analogy to, to help you understand what's going on. So what analogy would be useful here? Well, a groups of analogy of multiplication would be helpful. So for example, if you have two times three, you can think of that as two groups of three. So you have this and you have it again. <laughs> By analogy then, what is one half times one third? And you, you hope the child, the students will realize that, okay, one half times one third could be thought of as one half group of a third. So if I have a third, I need a half of it. So my answer is, what's that? What's that? Well, you can figure it out. Use the manipulatives. It's a six. And, and you can invent the manipulative procedure with the Kuznir rods. Or with other different types of manipulatives. We use colored circles, too, and that are cut up in various sizes. And the analogy not only helps you invent the informal procedure and be able to informally determine an answer, but it helps you understand why multiplication doesn't always make something bigger. Because when you multiply a fraction times the fraction, the answer is always getting smaller. Why is that? 99% of my incoming students, my pre-service teachers at Illinois, couldn't tell you why. It just is. They couldn't tell you why. Now, these people were no dummies. These people largely came from the top 10% of their class, graduating class in high school. So these weren't, these weren't stupid people. But that's how bad our educational system can be. <laughs> they can't even explain a simple thing like, why is a one half times a third smaller than either of the two fractions that, that were multiplied? Why is it getting smaller? And yeah. likewise with division. Why does the answer sometimes, why is the answer sometimes getting bigger? Well, that's, that's really scary. So if I have a half divided by a quarter, why is the answer coming out two? How did it get bigger? Well, again, an analogy can really be helpful here. And the, the analogy I used was with, with fair sharing and measuring out shares. So you can have fair sharing where you're divvying up things. For example, you have six items and you divide them between two people 
or you could have six items and you can have shares of three and you can measure out shares of three. So fair sharing can either be divvying up or measuring out. Well, it turns out that, that fair sharing by measuring out is very useful when you get to thinking about fraction division. Because you can think of one half divided by a third as, okay, I've got a half. Each share is one third. So how many shares can I make out of this one half? At least one. <laughs> and then you have to use the manipulatives to figure out <laughs> what that, that leftover part is, what part of a share that is. It, it, it certainly makes it more understandable than invert the divisor right. and multiply. Yeah. So what, what I tried to do was get my students to invent this fair sharing measure out procedure and then to devise a shortcut for it. And you can actually rediscover the invert and multiply procedure. Well, you can do that, but there's actually an easier procedure, common denominator method, which is a lot easier to, to, to discover. So there's another, another way of doing it. And I think the using manipulatives can be very powerful. I found them extremely useful, even with college level students who've gone through 14 years of math, formal math instruction. You could put what they understood about numbers and arithmetic in a thimble. And I'm including the secondary math people who took all sorts of math courses in college. If you ask them why, they would just look at you mystified. Why, why am I being asked that question? I've never been asked that question in math class before. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> why? <laughs> it just is. That's <laughs> yeah. what I learned. <laughs> you have been conducting research on children's mathematics learning for many years. Can you just say a little bit about how you conduct your research? Uh, how many hours is this interview? <laughs> I know, just, just a very broad brushstroke as well, because we were coming near the end, just to kind of get a sense of that. I've used a variety of methods in my, in my research. When I started out, I used a case study method where I basically followed a child over time. And I was very lucky and, and as a result, discovered a accounting-based addition strategy no one had ever talked about before. Uh, it was just wonderful. To, you know, this, this five-year-old was doing something I had never seen. I had not seen it described before, but by golly, she was, she was doing something different than should have been happening. So I, I was, happened to luck out. That, that was fun. On the other extreme, I've used random control trials that you know tightly control everything. Uh, and that's what I've been doing lately uh, with, with arithmetic fact knowledge. So it, it really varies. It depends on the question. It depends on the question. There is no one right method for, for doing research. The case study is invaluable when you're tr 
exploring a new area and trying to find out what the possibilities are. You're trying to establish an existence theorem. In this case, a new counting strategy for addition. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you if you want to demonstrate that a particular teaching method is better than another, well, then you need to use tight controls and random assignment and control for everything and make sure that the only thing that varies are the, the two types of instruction. We're coming near the end, so I usually ask guests a kind of a, a fixed set of questions uh, coming towards the end, not, not specific to your area of research. And my first okay. one for you is, what is school for or what are schools for? I would hope to develop basic skills that they're going to need as, as adults. And by basic skills, I don't mean skills skills. I mean, understanding and being able to think and having a, a disposition to, to contribute. I, I think we want to make people who can contribute to society, who can participate in a democracy effectively. And that requires knowledge with understanding, being able to think effectively, and, and having an, a certain affect that means that you're looking out for other people as well as yourself. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Uh, good or bad? Either. <laughs> a, a significant impact. Let me, let me tell you a story. <laughs> when I was in second grade, I had the most horrible teacher in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and this is only one incident. <laughs> this one day at the end of, at the end of the school day, the teacher calls me up, shoves a note into my hand and says, I want you to read that note. And I looked at the note and it said, Arthur was S some letter L L Y. Well, the only word that I knew that started with an S had some, some, some letter there and ended with L-L-Y was Sally because my school used the old Dick, Jane, Sally, and Spot reading primers. So I hesitated. I didn't want to, it didn't make any sense to me <laughs> what this note said. And so the, the teacher grew impatient and demanded that I tell her what, what the note said. Oh boy. Oh boy. Arthur was Sally today. <laughs> what? The teacher explodes. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> This is why I'm sending home a note to your mother. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I get home. My mother puts me up on the counter. She looks at the note and says, Arthur, do you know what this note says? Not really, mommy. <laughs> what do you think it says, Arthur? I don't want to say, mommy. <laughs> And I've never seen my mother get madder. 
her face grew red and, and all kind of puffed out. It looked like she was about to explode. Oh, geez, I, I can't put this off any longer. So she said, I'm going to give you one more chance, Arthur. Tell me what it says. I said, the note says Arthur was Sally today. My mother was fit to be tied. No wonder the teacher's writing notes home to me. You silly boy. <laughs> now, I was sitting in my graduate class on psychology of reading. And we were talking about reading errors. A very common reading error is substitution error. If a child comes across a word they don't know, they try to match it to the closest word that they do know. So when I saw silly in the note, I didn't know what that was. So I matched it to the closest thing that I knew that had S. L-L-Y, and that was Sally. I was making a substitution error. But neither my teacher or my mother recognized it. And I think that's in part why I became an educational psychologist. Because I wanted to help people understand how kids think. So that they wouldn't have to be <laughs> emotionally abused <laughs> because they were making a sensible error that adults just don't understand. No, it, it, it makes perfect sense with what we know now about reading. Uh, the final question are, sure. is, have you a favorite writer, book, or blog about education? There are, are a number of books that have had a real impact on me. Uh, John Holt, when I was an undergrad, wrote some wonderful books about how to teach in a creative, meaningful way that kids would enjoy. And that had a profound effect on me. In graduate school, the, the book that probably had the biggest impact on me was uh, John Dewey's experience in education. Basically, the, the book was about Dewey's efforts at reform education. And what he did was they set up these progressive schools that were the exact opposite of traditional schools. So if a traditional school used textbooks, no textbooks in a progressive school, if the seats were bolted down, movable chairs and tables in the progressive school. So basically it was just a reaction to what, what traditional instruction was doing. And Dewey was very honest. He said, it was a failure. It was a miserable failure. So when, when you're developing instruction, you have to have a philosophy that, that's, that makes sense. And what he argued is kind of an interaction uh, uh, theory where the, the exterior factors have to match the interior factors. They have to interact effectively. So in, interior factors would be things like interest, existing knowledge, 
exterior factors would be the, 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 the specific content that's being taught, the methods used. And these two factors have to interact effectively to produce an educative experience. If there's a mismatch, then you have a miseducative experience, which either results in no learning or, or worse, learning that can impede future learning. <laughs> An example of a miseducative experience, there was a, a, a method that was used, basically using concrete objects, that was used by teachers in the second grade and in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth, same activity. Well, in, in the second grade, it might've been an educative experience. In the third through fifth grade, it's no longer an educative experience, <laughs> you know, because they weren't taking into account the internal factors where the child was at at the time. I, I intended this to go on for an hour. It's gone on for a lot longer, but I really appreciate your generosity of time. And Absolutely. thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. I have half my notes here that we haven't even covered yet. So if you, <laughs> yeah, so I, if, you want, if you want to go back. <laughs> well, is there anyone you'd try. like to, is there anything you'd like to go over that we did that I skipped over? Oh my goodness. One of the questions was what can teachers do to, to promote, for example, counting or number skills? Well, let me tell you a story. When, when my younger daughter was, was two, I came home one day from work and uh, my uh, wife was so excited. She said, Ariane, Ariane knows two. She understands two. Oh, I, I, my heart swelled. I was, I was so happy. You know, being a math educator, psychologist, oh, this is just so wonderful. So I went down to the playroom. I said, Ariane, how many fingers is daddy holding up? I held up two fingers. She said, two, daddy! You know, being the researcher that I was, I wanted to check. So I held up one finger. How many fingers, Ariane? Two, daddy! I held up three, four, five, ten fingers. They were all two. Two was her favorite word of the day, basically. And later that night, I heard her hopping down the stairs on her butt Two, 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 two. So what does this tell us? It, it, it tells us that, you know, numbers uh, initially are pretty global. You know, they, they don't really match up very well with exact amounts. And many kids will learn, for example, one first. And then two is just not one, many. And then they learn one and two. So three is many or buku. And then they learn one, two, three, and then four or five is many and, and so forth. So uh, this understanding of number really unfolds very slowly. And this is, you know, the basic we're talking about here is subitizing. So this is not something that happens quickly. Uh, I, I, understanding a two takes about a year or so to construct. So you have to be patient if you're going to be a parent or teacher. And the other thing I think, uh, the other point, important point for teachers that would come out of this would be you need to use non-examples as well as examples. So if you're teaching two, 
you need a wide variety of examples of two to show, you know, how two can apply to all these different situations. But you also need non-examples of two. So they know the limits of a concept. So you tell them you can take two cookies and they take three. Wonderful learning opportunity here. That's not two. That's three. And even if they don't know exactly what three means, they know it's not two. <laughs> yeah. So they begin to learn the upper limits. And that reminder of the power of non-examples as well as examples when teaching mathematics was given by Professor Art Baroudi from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. That's all for this episode of Inside Education. You can listen back to over 420 previous podcasts by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. Follow me on Twitter, at InsideEd, and write to me with comments and suggestions to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available as an audiobook from Audible and other audiobook platforms. I look forward to being back with a new podcast soon, and thank you for listening this time. Your support is appreciated. Mm-hmm.